Urban Rivers is a Chicago-based nonprofit organization comprised of a passionate group of ecologists, entrepreneurs, and public servants with a collective background that spans world-renowned organizations, businesses, and institutions. Urban Rivers is spearheading efforts in the construction of the Wild Mile, a mile-long floating eco-park in the Chicago River, with student programming as the top priority. Wild Mile Chicago presents a unique opportunity to create community-accessible public open space. For all things Urban Rivers and Wild Mile, please visit our website at www.urbanriv.org. Hey everyone, thanks for joining this episode of the Urban Rivers podcast. This is Brett with Urban Rivers and we're really glad to have you. We have a super interesting conversation with our bat conservationists, Claudia Booth, and Phil and I just have an in-depth conversation about bats in Chicago and how bats live in this urban context and how cool bats are. I know my big takeaway from this was that bats are awesome and we should do everything that we can to help support their habitat and it's great that the Wild Mile is helping support. Enjoy! Sometimes gulls and blue jays are predators of bats. They're so mean. These they birds are. are so mean. People don't realize this, but these birds are just they're they're the they're the bullies of they the, are. the flying world. They just don't care about anything. They are. They're kinda of, they're kind of not very nice. They need a class of compassion or something. All right, so we have with us now Claudia Booth, Urban Rivers resident bat extraordinaire. She's been with us for a little while, maybe a couple of years now, Claudia? Yeah, a couple of years. How would you describe what you do for us? I consider myself the bat conservationist at Urban Rivers. I'm almost done with my master's degree from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I actually found out about you through Josh Yellen. That's one of our co-founders. Yes, Josh Yellen Extraordinary actually came and had a talk with our class online one day, and he absolutely dumbfounded me with the work that you guys are doing. And I wasn't sure how a bat conservationist would fit in with Urban Rivers, because he was talking a lot about birds and fish and plants. And I thought, well, there's no room in there for a bat conservationist. But, you know, it, I couldn't get it out of my head. And I thought, well, you know, all he's going to do is tell me no. So maybe there's a place for me. I'll give it a shot. So I went ahead and I contacted Josh. And I could not believe how excited he was. And I therefore got very excited. He's like, come on board. Oh, my gosh, this is wonderful. Bats need help in, in Chicago. Let's do this. And I've been hugely pumped ever since. Uh, he totally wanted a bat conservationist on the islands. And here I am. All right, Claudia, there are bats in Chicago, obviously, or else you wouldn't be studying mm -hmm. them. Are Absolutely. there certain species that we see in Chicago? Are some species more prevalent than others? And what makes one species more prevalent? So there are, there are a bunch of bats living in Chicago. I'd say there's probably five to seven bat species that are living in Chicago. Some definitely are more prominent than others. The ones that you're going to see most often is called the big brown bat. And these bats are pretty much what they're called, big and brown. They're really hardy bats, and it's the majority of the species in Chicago. It's the second largest bat in Illinois, as a matter of fact. They're, wow. they're all dark brown. And I know when you're looking up at the sky, it's kind of hard to distinguish. You know, they're kind of just these shadows flying around. But sometimes at dusk, or maybe if they're flying lower, you can kind of see what they are, their characteristics. And the big browns, they have probably a 14-inch wingspan. And they're dark brown, and then their ears and their wings are all black. And they probably, you know, as big as they are, they only weigh about an ounce. I'd say that the bats that you find in houses and things like that, about 98% of those are, are big brown bats. So if you want to seem smart and someone says, oh, I have a bunch of bats in my houses, you can say, oh, yeah, they're probably big browns. <laughs> and everybody will think you're, like, really smart. So in the spring, the maternity colonies are are big browns and you really don't want to mess with the maternity colonies in the spring because they're having their babies so if you have bats in the springtime in your house leave the mamas alone and then if you have bats in the summertime flying into your house those are also big brown bats those are the kids that are learning how to fly 
and they're confused and they flew into your house. So, you know, oh. kind of give the kids a break. They're big <laughs> browns. They don't have life figured out yet. So I'm trying to show them a little bit of compassion. These guys hibernate in caves and mines and culverts and things like that. They also love buildings. So if you have the old, big old buildings, that's where you'll find the big brown bats. The second most common bat is the hoary bat. These are my favorites because if you look at their face, they remind me of a German shepherd. They have the gray face and they have like a yellow cheeks and things like that. They're beautiful. If you Google a hoary bat, H-O-A-R-Y. And they're called so because... They have a frosty fur appearance. Oh, yeah. I'm, I just Googled one just now. Wow. Those, those yeah, very German Shepherd-esque. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, they're like gray and frosty and just so gorgeous. And they're actually, they are the biggest bats in the United States. They have like a 16-inch wingspan, 13 to 16 inches. Oh, yeah. And they're just gorgeous. And they're very common, actually, in our area. They like to hang around the river and the waters because they need a lot of room to hunt. So you'll find them in open areas. We also get a lot of eastern red bats. If you like unusual, you'll probably like the eastern red. They're kind of crazy. I call them the crazy cousins of the Chicago bat family. <laughs> um, they have like a 12-inch wingspan, and they weigh about a half an ounce. So these bats are really huge, but they don't weigh very much. It's kind of strange. And, and when I teach kids, I always, it's kind of fun because whatever I say, I always say, except for red bats. After a while, they'll, they'll mimic me because I'll say all bats usually have one or two babies, except for red bats. They'll have three or four. And, uh, you know, most bats live in trees, except for red bats. And some of them will hibernate in a leaf pile underneath the snow. So they're they're kind of the, like I said the crazy cousins of the of the Chicago bat family. That's great. So those actually require big patches of untouched leaves. Yeah. Well, they've been known they do go into trees and things like that. And what's funny about them is they're they're the redheads of the bat family. They have these big, beautiful, bright redhead fur. So if you Google those, you'll see it's like, wow, that is a redhead. It's just beautiful. They do hang in trees, but they hang by one foot. So like I said, they're very unusual critters. It's very punk rock, isn't it? It is. They're fun. (laughs) They're so fun. They hibernate. They've been known to hibernate leaf piles under snow. So if you're burning your leaves uh, in the spring, you might want to kick it around a little bit. You might have surprise fly up. They're hard to see because when they're hanging by little, one little foot, they look exactly like a dead leaf hanging from a stem. They migrate, so there's a lot more of them in the spring and the fall. We have silver-haired bats, so if you like elegance and beauty, you might like a silver-haired bat because they look like they have this fur coat on their black bats with this silver tip on them. So they look like they're wearing a fur coat. These are the fancy bats. Then. These are the fancy bats, well yes. dressed ready to they go to do. a ball. Yes. They look like they're ready to go to a ball. They're very beautiful. They have like an 11-inch wingspan. And they're usually forest bats. So the fact that they're hanging around in the city is very interesting to me. And we find them a lot at Urban River site, which is kind of cool. And I think it's because we have the tall trees, which they like, on the east side of the river. They love water. Silver bats need a water source, so we do have the river. And then we have our islands, which is a perfect perfect habitat, you know, for the bugs with the plants. So I'm really excited that our little prom queens and kings are, are visiting us here in Chicago. And then we have, we have little brown bats and tricolor bats. Now, we don't see very much of them. Little brown bats, for folks who are my age, like 50s and 60s and older, when we were little, brown bats were just all over the place, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And that's how I got interested in bats, is we used to go down to the park and play and look at the bats flying all around. And because of a disease that we'll probably talk about a little later, 95% of a lot of the caves starting east and moving towards us it has hit our area has wiped out 95 percent of the little brown bat and tricolor bat population these are the smaller bats of our area so you're not going to find them around anymore i think i found one last year i found a little brown bat 
I probably found three or four tricolor bats. And these are things that you used to see all the time, huh? All and now time. we're just in a bad spot. Right. And I, uh, I went up to northern Michigan, and I brought my equipment up there. And there are hundreds of little brown bats, so they haven't been affected up there yet. And it used to be the same down here, but um, not the case anymore. And the thing about bats is that they only have one baby a year. So repopulating their species is a very difficult thing, if you can imagine. Right. The 95% of our population getting wiped out, and then we all, you know, our population has one baby a year. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how long it would take us to repopulate. Even if everyone is doing their absolute best. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So that's interesting. So you mentioned Chicago comes in around five to seven species. I think if I remember my undergraduate classes correctly, there's around 13 or so species in Illinois in general. Obviously, yes. we're a very long state. So like there's the forests and hills way down south. There's all like these little kettle lakes up north here and then all this prairie in between. What are some of the things that attract bats to Chicago? And what are some of the species that really don't like an urban environment? Why is that? Well, the bats that like us, or really, I should say the bats that don't mind us, are the big brown bats, the hoary bats, and the eastern red bats. Big brown bats, you know, they're just low-key. They're they're big. They're hardy. They're just going to live wherever. They're good adapters. The Indiana bats, they are harder off than the little brown bats they look almost exactly like little brown bats but they're having more problems so we're not going to find them around a lot of the bats like open they like forest they like the prairies and things like that they are not going to be in the chicago in the urban areas they don't like clutter they like to live in the deep forests so you're going to find a lot of them kind of hiding in the trees they're not going to come into chicago unless You may find them in the forest preserves. I know Linga Park Zoo has something called the Urban Wildlife Institute, which I encourage everybody to go check out. They do a lot of research on bats. I work with them a lot. We work with each other. And they do a lot of forest preserves and golf courses and parks and cemeteries, which is urban, but it's more open areas. And I'm doing actually work on the river along urban rivers in there. So they're interested in my research because they've never done the river area before, which is also open. So these bats, even though it's in Chicago, they're adapting to what we're bringing in. So if you think about it, they're not really infringing on us. We're kind of infringing on their territory because they've been here the whole time, right? So if you think about it, we're infringing on the wildlife, the wildlife isn't infringing on us. So that the, the wildlife is surviving here, they're going to acclimate to the circumstances that they've been given. So we have to remember that like wildlife bats are gonna look for natural habitat amidst the urban landscape. So they can, they can survive in the city. They're just going to be looking for natural things within that city, so parks and the river. Like bats, the first thing they do when they wake up is they'll go skyward and they'll stretch, you know, do a little bit of exercising, get their wings moving, do a little bit of socializing. Back calisthenics. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) The second thing they do is get a drink of water. All bats need a water source. So the closer you are to a water source, the better off you are for your bat habitat. We're right on the river, which is wonderful. So they're going to come down and take a drink, and then they're going to start looking for prey. They're going to go hunting. Our bats are insectivores so they eat insects so after they get their drink they're going to start hunting and so what they need is they need healthy plants that will attract bugs and insects and what they do is they eat you got to think about the size of the bat so the bigger the bat the bigger the bugs they can eat so the big bats like we were talking about the big brown bats and the big hoary bats they can eat the big june bugs and the big crunchy bugs because they can fit them in their mouths And then the little bats, like the little, we were talking about the little tricolor bats, the little brown bats. And then the smaller bats, like the silver hair bats, they're on the smaller end. They're going to get the little soft ones, like the tinier, the smaller moths that are not hard and crunchy and something that they can fit in their mouths. So we go from the big crunchy June bugs all the way down to the little tiny moths. The smaller bats will also eat mosquitoes. 
just anything small, flies, canvas flies, things like that. Um, and another thing, obviously, if you think about it, the bugs have to be out at night, right? So any bug that is out at night and the bats know that they have to preferably look around healthy plants to find these bugs, that's where they're going to be looking. So a good bat habitat, if you're going to be in the city, is going to be trees, tall trees, because they like the taller trees, more established trees. They like a water source, which is the most important thing. And they like healthy plants because they know that's where they're going to find their food. I've heard you call it a bat buffet before. <laughs> it really makes sense when you talk about it like that. And it's it's interesting, though, because it kind of seems like there's a lot of a lot of people are like bats. You know, you got your city bats and your country bats and you got bats that like to, you know, hang by one foot and bats that like to do it a little differently. And it's interesting that this this food dynamic, I think a lot of people don't really realize, you know, things like uh, ducks or geese, which are plentiful, like mallards or Canadian geese, which we just have all over the place, house sparrows, they're all feeding on, I guess, like kind of the urban remnants. They're all able to adapt very well to our environment, which is why we see them everywhere. But less talked about is how their quality of life is impacted by just having, you know, like ducks and geese can actually get like a form of diabetes because all they eat is French fries and potato chips. And so it's really interesting to hear you talk about, I'm sure that the quality of plant then has something to do with the quality of food that these bats end up getting. Yes, absolutely. Bats need to have native plants to get native bugs because if you have like a lot of people like to plant the exotic plants and a lot of these bugs that these these bats eat they are plant specific so if you plant a bunch of exotic plants you're not going to get the bugs that these bats need these bugs are not going to eat your or they're not going to you know eat they're not going to lay their eggs they're not going to thrive on exotic species so you're going to starve these bugs out if you plant your native plants then these bugs will thrive, they'll, they'll multiply, they'll grow, and your bat buffet will be a healthy resource that you know is sustainable. You also have to think about your environment. Like on urban rivers, the challenge was to find plants, to find native plants that were sustainable on a wet environment. So we had to find plants that would do well with wet feet and also track night books. So that was that was the that was the kicker. So I came up with uh, with the help of of you, our lovely botanist. We came up with uh, golden Alexander, swamp aster, mountain mint, and swamp rose mallow. And what what we need in a bat buffet is we're looking for night blooming flowers. So flowers that bloom at night. We need them. They're usually more fragrant, so that the night bugs will be more attracted to them because they go, a lot of times they go by fragrance. And so these bugs are attracted to these night blooming flowers, which then attract the bats. So it's it's kind of a, a math equation trying to figure out the perfect plant to plant on this wildlife sanctuary that happens to be floating in a river to get the exact bugs to get the bats. But it's, you know, when it works, it's amazing and, you know, to get these bats taken care of and to see it work successfully, it's fantastic. And anybody can plant a bat garden to help these bats. You know, you find out what blooms at night or a light color flower, like like white or yellow or light blue or light purple. And whatever works in your garden, you know, with your soil or your sun um, is amazing. It just happens that in our garden, we had to find something that would like to be wet all the time. <laughs> it should be natural, but it should be a native plant. I should, I, I, that's really important. Native plants attract native bugs, which native bats mm -hmm. eat. It's probably the difference. It, when you go into that pizza hut, right, and you're looking at the two buffets, and there's one that is just pizza, and there's one that's like the little salad bar. <laughs> We're trying to create more salad bar and less of just the pizza side, right? Yeah. You know, you want to have a salad bar and then there's a buffet of things that you've never seen before. 
some of it is teal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you want, but I'm going for the salad bar. <laughs> Claudia, bats rely on echolocation for communication and hunting for those insects. Are there obstacles in the urban environment that is Chicago that will obstruct this use of echolocation? Yes, there is. You know, the big thing in Chicago is the plate glass windows and the, the smooth steel of some of the buildings. There has been research done where bats view steel and glass as a pathway. So the big problem is that bats use Lake Michigan as a migration path from northern Wisconsin all the way down to the southern states when they go from north to south for hibernation and then when they come back in the spring. So, and then when they get to the south of Lake Michigan, it's kind of, Chicago kind of funnels them all in. So there's a big occurrence of bats hitting plate glass windows and steel because they, their echolocation, when it bounces off glass, it goes every which way except back at them. So they don't receive these echoes back at them so they assume nothing is there and when you are migrating at top speed like when you're traveling 65 miles an hour down the highway and you assume nothing is in front of you and all of a sudden you crash you know that could be very bad we end up with bats with broken wings broken jaws you know concussions death so yeah the the biggest problem for bats is migration and play glass windows. That's a very bad thing. Also, when they're kind of flitting around in the city, they can also hit the windows. It's usually not as high speed, but it, you know they can still kind of knock themselves senseless. So if you ever see a bat on the sidewalk and he looks kind of loopy or he's out cold, I guess you guys have 311. Would that be the, the information folks? Oh, you know what? I've never had to call anything like that. Who knows? But there's also been research where, you know, if these if these bats can learn, you know, if they survive their first glass encounter, bats are very able to learn from their mistakes. There's been scientists where they put uh, clear plate glass or clear plexiglass on the surface of water and um, so bats know that if there's still water horizontally and they echolocate and it doesn't bounce back at them, they know that that is still water because there's very few perfectly flat surfaces in nature. So if they come back, if they come to this situation where there's a perfectly still horizontal, they know it's probably water. So scientists put this plexiglass on top of a water, a body of water, and the bats came and echolocated. They assumed it was water, and they came down to take a drink. And they found out it was this hard substance. So then the bats acclimated, and they learned, and they found another place to drink water. So they learned very quickly that it, so it seems like water, but it's not water. And then they did the same thing with a black surface, flat surface. They put it over the water, so it kind of blocked the water from the bats. The bats came down. It didn't matter what color it was. They were depending on echolocation. They echolocated. They thought it was water. They tried to take a drink. It was blocked from them. And they immediately adapted and went to a different body of water to take a drink. And they never came back to that spot as long as that piece of plexiglass or that, that hard surface was there. So these bats have the intelligence to, to learn and adapt. So if they can, if they hit the glass once, research says that they can learn from their mistakes. But the problem is getting giving them a second chance <laughs> to make that connection. Just like yeah. all of us need, right? <laughs> yeah. We all need that opportunity to learn what exactly. it feels to get hit by something, so you exactly. know to avoid it later on. <laughs> Leads us into kind of this next question. I know there's a researcher at Northeastern Illinois, which is where I got my master's degree. Claudia, you've worked with this guy for a little bit now, oh. doing really interesting work on the effects of artificial lighting on green spaces, especially in Chicago now. And this 
it's a very wide term green spaces. It really kind of means anything without concrete and building mm-hmm. there. But his all of his research is about this artificial lighting, and there's a couple different ways that artificial lights end up influencing uh, ecology. Besides the fact that it's just light, you know, you have things that are attracted to light or things that avoid light, but there's also hormonal things that are going on when organisms are exposed to light. You know, your circadian rhythm is thrown off by an absence of natural light. And that probably applies to most other species and most other organisms because everything only has that sunlight information to tell when the seasons are changing you know they don't have clocks and watches so light is very very important and i'm just wondering you know is there like a is it multifaceted for bats too are bats disturbed by bright lights and then also are knocked off their rhythm what do you think artificial light ends up doing to these bats and i guess the way they interact with the ecosystem I find his work so fascinating. I got to tell you, I, I, I never really thought about it until he brought it to me. And then it just absolutely fascinated me. And there's, it's, it's multi-level because after we talked, I really started looking at my research. And first of all, I would like to say that I also researched the moth population. And I took these moth buckets, you take these black lights and you take them out, I take them out to the island and you put them basically on a five gallon bucket. And the moths are supposed to be attracted to the black light and then they drop into this five gallon bucket. And I took it, I put it, I put it in a kayak, took it out to the island and I sat there and I watched for the moths. And I'm supposed to get hundreds of moths for this sample. I sat out there till midnight, I got two moths. I was shocked. So, so I have an entomologist friend. She has a, a doctorate in entomology. And I asked her, what am I doing wrong? She gave me a couple pointers. I went back out to the island, did it again, took her advice. Three moths. 50% increase. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, it occurred to me that I'm wondering if it's the artificial light. These moths are not attracted to my artificial light because they live within the environment of artificial lighting. We've got all those because to explain the situation right where our gardens are, just above that is this river walk. And the city of Chicago actually mandates now that any new development has to set back about 30 feet for a river walk. The new buildings, like the Whole Foods, which is relatively newer, that's right above where our gardens are, that has these big open glass structures that are looking out onto the river, that you get the stores lighting that it's being created that's getting cast on the river. Not only that, you have all the safety, the lamps, the street lights that are lining either sides of this river walk. So it is pretty flooded, especially on that side, with artificial lighting kind of all the time, right? Yes, it is. It is. Actually, I live in the country where I go out with my bat monitors into my backyard at night. I know when the sun goes down. It's dark. <laughs> you know, it's very dark. And I've been on the river before at Urban Rivers, and I've had to call my husband before and ask him, is it dark yet? Because <laughs> you can't tell. Chicago, you know, I'm not a city girl, so I, I can't tell when it's dark. And he's he, he thought I was crazy. He's like, of course it's dark. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I can't tell. It's not dark everywhere. <laughs> it's not dark everywhere. It's very, it's very twilight here, even though it's you know ten thirty at night. So that that moth research that I did just absolutely fascinated me, and I need to look into that, and I need to study that further. Not only when I sit there and look for bats, I don't see any. I know I know that you don't, you know. You think I'm crazy. You don't think there's bats in Chicago, but there are, you know, but I know what you mean because I don't see any bats when I'm sitting out there on the islands looking for bats. That's why scientists use equipment because we, sometimes we don't see bats either. We have to use the echolocation equipment, but there's not a lot of activity at the Whole Foods location because of the ambient light, but they're there. 
I, they're, they, they're picked up on these echolocation devices that I use. They're absolutely there. Maybe not until later. So it's it's just fascinates me with the circadian rhythm thing. I, I absolutely need to look into that. However, that being said, my brother and I like to go down to the tennis courts. He lives up by Belmont. And we often go to the tennis courts on the lakefront there and watch the bats. They dive bomb the lights at the tennis courts. It's a party out there after dark. What they do is they come in and they dive bomb. They use the lights for food. And then they, they swoosh back off into the darkness of the trees. So they've learned to use the artificial lighting for their needs, but they don't like to hang around in the artificial light. So they're, they're using the parks as a place to barbecue as well. Exactly. And getting back to those bats are just like people. This is astonishing. Yes, yes. They have their little coolers in the trees probably. Come on out. And, yeah, and I don't even know if these people playing tennis, ever, if they ever look up, they'll see five, six, seven bats swishing around. They probably have no idea the wild world going on mere feet above their heads. Yeah, and if you ever see a, a, a woman and a man just wandering around the perimeter of the tennis courts looking up like they're crazy people, that's my brother and I taking surveys. <laughs> but it's, it's just fascinating how they, they don't like light, but they certainly will take advantage of it. Yeah, so that, that brings up a good question, though. So you mentioned your equipment. This, obviously, you've got some cool stuff that you use to figure out if there are bats there. Because, mm. obviously, you're going at night. It's they, They're very particular. How do you figure out what bats are there, how many there are? What, what's the equipment that you're using to gather your data when you do experiments like this? I use something called, it's called, it's from Wildlife Acoustics. I have several devices that I lay out around the city, they record and identify echolocation calls. So each species has their own call, like their, their own language. And this device can pick up the recorded or pick up the calls and record the calls, the ultra high frequencies. It can bring it down so we can hear it. And then it can also identify which species it is. So, what I do is I take, I have two, two research sites that I study at Urban Rivers. I have one, you know, on the island, and then I go down a little bit where we will expand someday because I want to keep track of the growth. And then I have two control sites. One of them, one of the sites is similar to the Urban River site, what it used to look like before the islands were installed. Um, and then the other site is similar to the urban rivers habitat as far as natural plants and trees and the river and the steel walls. And then what I do is I have these boxes and I place them at each of the locations and I leave them out for seven nights. They're on automatic timers. So they turn on at sundown and they turn off at sunup. And I leave them out for seven nights in May when the bats are coming back. I leave them out in July when the babies are starting to fly. I leave them out in September when the bats are starting to leave. And then I, I run the numbers and I see who is flying around where. And I kind of look for interesting trends and see what species is where and what they're doing and you know who's growing and who's leaving and who likes what location. And you know, it's um, fiddling around with the plant species on urban rivers and, and seeing what we can do to increase the population at urban rivers and, and better support their population and the conservation, oh, what works, what doesn't work, things like that. Are there any things that you're kind of noticing that are different between the sites thus far? I mean, I'd love for you to say right now that the Wild Mile, the islands are a bat haven. Is there anything that you've been noticing overwhelmingly from what you've been doing so far? It is, actually. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Is... Yeah, we can stop now. That's all we okay. need. No, you know, Urban Rivers, it has on the, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the south side of the river across the way from us. Right. And to the 
southeast that has those tall trees. It has old tall trees, right. which bats love. It has a water source, which bats love. And we are providing them with healthy native plants, which is the bat buffet, which, you know, increasing the night blooming flowers will increase the the buffet for them, you know, the food source. So I think we're, we're having happy bats. I have not crunched all of the numbers for this year yet, or for last fall yet. But from what I saw, just the raw data, I think we're in a great position. You know, just I'd like to increase the, the plants a little bit more this year and see if the numbers go up and maybe try a couple different species to see if they, the bugs like them more. You know, just the, the basic scientific tweaking I definitely want to work with the lights and the bugs, the, the moth bucket. I'm, <laughs> that, that just blows me away. But yeah, there's, it's, it's very interesting. The, the control site that was urban rivers before you put in the islands, is, it's a very, very stark difference. The only difference between urban rivers and the control site downriver is the islands. And the, the difference is amazing. Absolutely amazing. So I will be presenting, hopefully, uh, this fall. I'll be presenting my research. I think you'll be very surprised. Yeah, ever since you first came to us and just started talking, it was for us, too. It was this moment of, oh, that's something we've never thought about before. We've never even thought of it. Nobody had the expertise for bats. So it's like, I bet you anything, there's something crazy going on in the bat world. Bats are so important. Without bats, we would probably use it, be using twice as many pesticides as we would be using on our farm fields. Oh, they're amazing. They eat so many bugs. Moms, when a mom has a baby, the baby is about a third her body weight. So that would be like most women having like a 40-pound baby. Oh, man. Can you imagine? So, and then if she has twins, you know, just go figure. Wow. 80 pounds of bat child. (laughs) (laughs) They're tough. They're tough little critters. But they have, I mean, their food requirements are enormous. A lactating mom has to eat up to three quarters of her size in bugs every night. Most bats eat half their weight in bugs every night. And these are bugs that are, they're getting out of your garden. They're getting them off our farm fields. They're getting them out of our environment. You know, there's so many horror stories about bats. And they need to be extinguished because they're not, they're mammals. They're the only flying mammals in the world, you know, we have flying squirrels, but they really just fall gracefully. They don't really fly. So they're, they're just amazing, amazing creatures. And with some of them losing like they are 95%, we really need to help these guys out for what they give us. We need to help them back. So yeah, they're, they're fantastic. So if, if I can help them out at Urban Rivers and you know, and plus the work that, you know, Lincoln Park at Zoo is doing. We got them. We got their backs. It's great to hear how the floating gardens have really been beneficial for the bat population in that urban context. But again, you've mentioned that, I think it was the little brown bat, how 95% of their population has decreased. Is that primarily through the disease white nose syndrome? Yes. I've heard of that. Can you... Tell me like a little more about it is. What can we do anything to help with this? Or is this something that bats have to deal with on their own? Yeah, well white nose syndrome is pseudogymnoascus destructans is the scientific name of it. It came over from Europe probably about twelve, thirteen years ago. It's been in Illinois probably for the last ten probably ten years now. What happened was it it came from Europe and landed in New York, probably from some backpackers. What happens is backpackers or whoever, whoever, you know, like to wanders around in caves, they don't clean their equipment well enough and they bring spores with them on their shoes, on their clothes, on their equipment, whatever. And these spores get left behind in a new cave. 
And then white nail syndrome is a fungus. So if the fungus gets introduced to the new cave system, it likes cold and damp walls of caves and mines. It grows and it's actually a white fungus that will grow on the cave walls. What happens is the bat will land on the wall and it's highly, highly contagious to bats. And the bat will catch it. And because they're such a communal species, it will just go through the, go through the community just so quick. You can tell that they have it. They get a white fungus on the outside of their body and particularly on their muzzle. So that's why they call it white nose syndrome because it's on their, they get white fungus on their nose. And what happens is it's like, I've heard it compared to like athlete's foot. So what happens is they get really itchy and they end up waking up at night or they end up waking up during the winter time and itching and scratching and they can't get into torpor and they can't slide down deep into hibernation. So they end up waking up. Every time they wake up, they burn more body fat that they can't afford to lose because when animal hibernates, you know, they, they beef up, they get fat for the fall. And then they go into hibernation and they live off that fat. Well, every time a bat wakes up, they burn extra fat. So if these bats are waking up constantly because they're itchy and uncomfortable, they burn extra fat every time they're waking up. Some of them try to wake up. They get hungry because they're low on their fat. They'll fly out into the winter and die out there looking for food if the conditions are too cold or blizzardy or whatever, or they will just end up dying in the cave or the mine because they have no more energy. Their fat expels are all used up. Yeah, that's a white nose syndrome. And what happens is the bats carry it from cave to cave, and that's how it's getting, it's spreading gradually east. I think right now it is at the western edge of Iowa, Maybe the Dakotas, down to Texas. Texas is not as bad because it's warmer down there. But definitely in Canada, the Dakotas, and it's moving west, which tells us that it's anthropogenically moved because early on it was all along the East Coast and Oregon, or in Washington. So it tells us that somebody was exploring a cave on the East Coast, they got on an airplane, flew to the West Coast, and explored a cave there. Fascinating about that is it's just it's, it's probably nature lovers too that are tragically doing this. Exactly. Very much along the similar vein in pretty much anything that's an aquatic invasive. You have all these things that are getting taken up by fishermen in one lake and are moving their boat to another lake and don't, you know, clean it off properly. These are people that love these resources and just, just by happenstance are destroying the ecosystems that they're hoping to enjoy, which I think is a very tragic thing about humanity, but it also kind of a good reason for us to want to put a lot more effort into protecting these places and restoring these places, right? Because it's like, we are just doing so much damage accidentally. Imagine how much good we can do on purpose, right? Absolutely. You know, the, the ones that are getting really affected are the little browns and the tricolor bats. And they're thinking because it's because they're so small. For example, the, the big brown bats, they also hibernate and they do have signs of white nose syndrome. However, these hardy guys are not dying from white nose syndrome. So they're thinking that these guys are so big and hardy that they are surviving. Yeah. They probably have a slower metabolism and everything that allows them to weather the storm a bit better. That and the, the little brown bats and the tricolor bats, they're also going to warmer parts of the cave where the fungus is optimal. Whereas the big brown bats, they're going to a colder part of the cave where the fungus can't hang on as well. They also have more fat 
you know, size matters. They're, they're kind of big and they have more fat to spare. They have more body mass to spare. So this sickness is not as affecting them as much. I think I've heard you talk about perhaps being able to fight the fungus or prevent the fungus from getting in the caves because that, that seems to be where a big problem is. Are there things that we can kind of do to reduce that or do you have to create a whole new environment? Well, they are closing a lot of caves. They're just flat out not letting uh, people in a lot of caves due to the white nose syndrome. The ones that are safe, a lot of caves in Kentucky, a lot of caves in Tennessee, they're just closing them off. Like, nope, you know, we're not even letting people in here. They know that ultraviolet light will kill this, but, you know, some caves are hundreds of miles long. How do you do that? They have antibacterials that will kill this fungus, but, you know, what else does it kill? You have to be mindful of the, the biotic systems of the cave. You don't want to throw off any balance. So it's, it's kind of a tough thing. They're finding out that some little brown bats who survived the disease now have a resistance, and the babies that they're having have a resistance. So they're seeing a comeback from this disease on the East Coast, the very East Coast where it started. They're seeing that these, this new population of bats are developing, so they're evolving. So they're kind of making their own comeback. Again, you know, how long is that going to take when you have one baby a year? So they're, they're trying to come up with all kinds of different things. But again, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to think of inoculations that they can give the bats. They do have vaccines. How do you give it to the bats? They're thinking of maybe they can spray the mist at the bats when they emerge from their cave. Then they inhale it. There are, so there, there's some wonderful scientists with brilliant minds. They're, you know, not me, but I love reading about it. It sounds like it's a great opportunity for like that gold bond foot powder, you know, like the anti-athlete <laughs> foot treatments. This should be a really easy way for industry to tap into this, right? Let's do that. Let's yeah. do that. I heard you also mention, I think before, that there's a potential to use maybe artificial habitat structures like an old car battery housing. I, I can't quite remember what you were talking about, but this is maybe a year or so ago. But I, I was sort of surprised when you mentioned how many bats like to kind of tightly they're, they're not like spread out like you think they are through the whole case. They yeah. like to really <laughs> hang out right next to each other. They are a cuddly bunch. Yes, they are. Bat houses are very high population places. There was actually, I think GM was using Volt battery covers to make bat houses. Southern Indiana University is doing some research now because a lot of times the, the traditional bat houses, the, the rectangle ones, you know, the real skinny long ones, what happens is those get really hot in the summertime. And with our changing environment, it used to be up in Illinois, we'd tell you to paint your bat house black. Now we're telling you to paint your bat house dark gray because it's getting hotter in the summer. So we're doing research and we're finding that the volt, the, the battery covers are getting too hot. And what happens is these are maternity colonies that go in the bat houses and the babies are way at the top. They hang out at the top. And if it gets too hot, we're going to have a high mortality rate. So uh, Southern Illinois University is doing a lot of research, and they're finding out that something called a rocket box is a really great idea. So some <laughs> researchers designed this bathhouse called a rocket box in the Mark Twain National Forest. And instead of the, the traditional bathhouse that takes a couple of years to inhabit, and gets really hot at the top. They have this rocket box, and the researchers are finding ways with maybe some PVC chimneys and different designs on how to make it uh, safer and more ventilated. And it's really, it's a really cool thing. But the the bat box is really coming coming around to to modern designs and 
I think the Friends of the Chicago River, actually, they put up a condominium, I think, and I think they put up some rocket boxes. They're, they're really proactive about bat habitat. And it was really interesting what they did. But yeah, if you're, if you're looking for to put a bat house into your bat garden, Google rocket box bat designs, and they got some really, really neat ideas. And it's interesting too, right? Because they do have very, yeah, it's a very DIY kind of thing. So it's not as if you need some kind of machine fabrication that can create these things. A lot of these things are very much, you don't want to do a bad job, obviously. Like you mentioned, a poorly constructed bat house can leave these bats just as unhealthy as anything else. But, you know, there are definite, and I, I think like, you mentioned before the native plant aspect is something that really anyone can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a bat, a rocket box is also, I really, actually, I don't think you can buy a rocket box. It's something that you actually have to make. I know a lot of Boy Scout troops make it. I've seen a lot of plans online, but there's simple rocket box plans to very advanced rocket box plans. You know, it all depends on, how much skill you have and how much time you want to put into it. And, you know, there's instructions like you want it to be facing south. So the sun hits it for most of the day. You want to paint it dark gray. You want to make sure it's not by any trees where an owl or a hawk can be sitting there waiting for the bats to come out. (laughs) You know, that would be really bad. You know, things like that. You want to make sure that they have at least, you know, a six-foot drop when they come out. Oh, you want it about 12 feet in the air, so a cat can't be sitting out there below them, but you want to make sure that if it's like under above a bush that they have like a six-foot drop because bats actually drop, and then they get the wind underneath their wings to take off. So you can Google directions on where to put a bat box. There's so much science to it, (laughs) but it's really simple. I think everything I told you is probably... Yeah, keep it away from the hawks. Keep it away from the cats and make sure it gets enough sun. Those are the majorities. So Yeah, sounds like a perilous life for a bat. So you mentioned before how there's maternal colonies. Yes. And then mm-hmm. it seems to be like they have babies in a segregated area too. Where are these deadbeat dads? What are they up to while all this stuff is good, while mom is waking up and eating 24 hours a day? Like what, where are the dads at in all this? Hanging out in a tree somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> They're solitary creatures. They actually mating occurs in the fall, September, October, November, depending on the species. And then the mother holds the sperm in in her body until spring and then if the spring is a nice spring and she thinks oh you know maybe i want to have a kid this year then she'll let herself get pregnant wow yeah if it's going to be a tough spring she'll be "Eh, not so much not this year not this year yeah but uh and then the all the women will get together and and raise the kids but yeah Deadbeat dads, pretty much, that's, that's what they do. They hang out in trees by themselves. They're, they're bachelors, pretty much. They're cool. They're cool animals. And they have live pups. You know, they're mammals. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing, too, is the, 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 whole, the whole evolutionary aspect of that, where we've had a couple times where mammals have gone back into... Like, you know, I think the evolutionary timescale, and I might be messing this up a little bit, but I think the evolutionary timescale of, like, aquatic mammals, like dolphins and manatees and things, like, you had to have fish leave water, get onto land, and then go back into water, in the case of mammals. So you got onto land, mm-hmm. you developed lungs, and you went back into water. Something like that must have happened with bats, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're from like a small maybe rodenty kind of mm-hmm. mammal and then eventually you just go the way of the squirrel where you're hopping from tree to tree enough where it just makes sense to start flying mm-hmm. that in that evolutionary point where something starts to fly has to be one of the most fascinating points to be able to see these yes. things they are not considered rodents and what is their what is their closest i guess what is their kind of clade um, what is their evolutionary branch i believe they're ungulates 
Ungulates. Yeah. Is their closest. Gotcha. Don't quote me. But the cool thing about bats is if you look at a bat wings, they have fingers. So they have a thumb and four digits, a pinky, a ring finger, a middle finger, and an index finger. They have joints on their fingers. So the way they flap their wings, they are much more maneuverable than a, than a bird. That's how they can turn out a dime and, and do all those twisty turns and things like that. A bird basically just has the wings with the, the cartilage of, I'm, I'm not sure, the biology of a bird. But bats, actually, if you imagine the webbing in your fingers, if you imagine that went all the way up to your fingertips, and then that's how maneuverable a bat wing is. They can get pretty fancy with their wings as far as flapping and turning and, motiv and moving. So their mechanics is just amazing. Yeah, and that's, I think, like, whales have femurs, you know? Like, that's how that's oh, how crazy God. some of these things are. Because they once had legs and then got back in the water and were like, well, I don't need these legs anymore. This is <laughs> they, have like a, they have femurs and a pelvis, which is just kind of mind-boggling. With bats, it's like, bats are probably, I think, I was wondering why people kind of have that perception of bats being creepy, because if you look at bat pictures, bats are a adorable like so fuzzy and like if you see a picture of a bat like covered in pollen or something so i wondered i was trying to think yeah i was trying to think about why maybe they have this perception and i wondered if it was because they fly very erratically they fly very quickly in sort of a creepy way i guess and i yeah well they're you know they fly at night when it's dark <laughs> right and they're very hard okay. to keep track of and they do. They fly very erratically. So, you know, as a, as a species, we have a very hard time tracking them. So it would probably freak most people out. It's like, where did he go? Where did he go? I can't see yep. them. You know, and, and I'm sure that the, the fiction writers back in the day took advantage of that. You know, we have Dracula and, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, everybody took advantage of that to blame things on the bats when things went wrong in the night. But, you know, they're kind of scary if you don't, you know, it's like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? He's dark. I can't see him. Oh, my gosh, he's going to get me. You know, that's that's kind of a natural instinct. So you've never, you've of all these years that you've been hanging out with bats, you've never gotten a bat in the hair, right? Like, oh, that just no. didn't really happen. <laughs> Right. You know, I, I've talked to one person that said, my sister got a bat tangled in her hair, and she swears up and down that it happened. So I'm not, uh, it's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to believe her, sure, you know. I used to say, no, that never happens. But this, my friend, it was my friend. She's like, no, no, my sister, it happened to my sister. I'm like, okay. So I'm not going to say that never happens. <laughs> right. But at that point, it's like the bat is as panicked as you oh. are. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was saying when a bat flies in your house, you know, it's a kid that's learning how to fly and he is so terrified. All he wants is his mommy. So please be compassionate with them. So, but yeah, when I was little, we used to go down and, and um, look at the bats and we would, I, I'm so glad we were never successful, but we used to throw gravel up and they'd come swoop it down and eat it and once in a while, we would take my mother's bed sheets, and we would, when the bats came down to grab the gravel, we would throw the sheets up in the air, and we were trying to catch a pet bat. Pet bat. <laughs> a pet bat. I wanted a pet bat when I was seven years old, and I'm so glad it never worked. <laughs> well, you know, it sounds a lot like mist netting. It sounds like you were just a researcher before you even realized it. <laughs> Probably. There you go. I like that. <laughs> oh yeah, they're they are misnetting is fun. They have such attitudes. You know, they are they are these tiny little things. But when you get a hold of them, they are going to kill you, and they're going to kill your family. And it's they are in charge, and you are going to be sorry. And oh, it's man. just hysterical. Oh, they're so adorable. Don't mess with bats. <laughs> oh, they they tell you all about it. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny.
All right. Well, I, I think we kind of like to sort of wind down and get to things that people can be doing. Because obviously, now that people know everything about bats, now that bats have been fully explored, you really need to know yes. as a city, as a city slicker, as a Chicago resident, I'm living in my apartment on the third floor. I don't have much space. What who, what can I what can I do? Who can I talk to? Who do I vote for in order to help bats out? What would make your life easier? Ah, uh, what would make my life easier? Now I live in a different county, so you I don't know who your officials are, but there are very many places that you can volunteer including somebody we may know, some places we may know personally, <laughs> that you can take care of bat gardens and help plant gardens that will help bats. So bat gardening, if you want to put a bat garden in somewhere, that that is the number one thing I tell people. That's one thing that you can do. If you have any space whatsoever, that helps bats. If you don't and you know somebody who needs help volunteering for gardening, that's a wonderful thing. The one thing that I would like some help with is Illinois and Michigan are the only two states in the country that do not allow for bat rehab. Most states, if a bat is injured, they will take it to an animal rehabber. Illinois or Michigan do not allow that. Why is that? It's because of the rabies scare. Picked up bat is going to be euthanized. Whatever reason, whether it's injured or distraught or Ugh, whatever. Terrible. I would like to see that changed. And I think it could be changed. I think it should be changed. I think new research is out on on rabies numbers as opposed to raccoons or skunks or whatever. Yes, you know, there's, there is a, you know, bats and skunks and raccoons have a higher percentage of rabies than other animals, but I think it needs to be re-researched and re-evaluated because bats are in such danger right now. Not only because white nose syndrome, but because of wind turbines. Our hoary bats, those beautiful German shepherd looking animals, 95% of the time, quarry bats are found at the bottom of wind turbines. Oh. Of all the bats, wow. of all the bats that are found at the bottom of wind turbines, we're losing about a half a million quarry bats a year because of wind turbines. You can go to Bat Conservation International. They have great education opportunities on how to help bats and you know what you can do. You can write to your official and ask them to reach out to the wind turbine sector. If wind turbines turned down their power by 30% during bat migration season, we could pretty much wipe out bat deaths, according to research. A lot of wind turbine companies are cooperating. There are a lot that are not. So bat rehab, you can help with that, you know, by, by reaching out to your official about bat rehab. You can reach out to your officials about wind turbines. You can make sure your gear is clean, scrub, scrub, scrub with uh, bleach. And, you know, it's not the, you won't see the fungus because most of the time you're going to be picking up spores. So scrub your shoes, your, you know, wash your clothes, wipe down your equipment, your compasses or your headlamps and things like that with bleach because if you boil them it has to be at 130 degrees for 20 minutes i think yeah take care of your stuff if you go caving think about the things you can't see on your cave gear plant a bat garden support urban rivers become a river ranger there you go cough cough yeah cough <laughs> cough cough um gosh so many things um, send your love to the bat yeah Become, you know, if you're interested in, in bats, become a bat biologist, a bat conservationist. I, I love to to see people coming into the bat thing. We also have the Midwest Bat Working Group. 
It's called the Midwest Bat Working Group. You can go on Facebook and look that up. We have meetings. We have a Facebook group. It's for people who do research. It's for people who are interested in research. We get together. It's a bunch of people who just adore bats and want to do the best for them. So connect with us on Facebook. A lot of great tips there. That's perfect. Well, Claudia, that's about all the time that we have for this time around. This was absolutely fascinating, Claudia. You know, we just, we couldn't have done anything bat related without you. So you, they're critical. Definitely want to echo that sentiment of anybody who wants to help the bats or just anything that you know needs help. Go volunteer, go try to put as much time as you can because organizations like us and like all these other places yes. are desperate for people like this who just have a passion for it and just want to see these populations recover. Yes. So we love what you do, Claudia. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Claudia Booth, Bat Lady, lovingly known as Bat Lady. <laughs> Rivers, Bat Extraordinaire. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, well, that wraps up this episode of the Urban Rivers Podcast. A huge thank you to Claudia for teaching us all things bats and really advocating for bat habitat and how they're an important species that benefits humans as well. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening.